Our scripture reading today is uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. I'll be reading Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, so if you could turn there with me. Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. say is the most famous verse in the Bible? Many people would say, well, John 3.16 is the most famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I would agree with you that that is certainly a famous verse for us as Christians. Uh, So let me put the question to you in a slightly different way. What do you think is the most famous verse in the Bible for non-Christians? might say, well, most non-Christians don't really read the Bible, so how would they know what the Scripture actually says? Well, I would say it's true that most non-Christians don't spend much time with the Bible, but if they did, if they did know a verse in the Scripture, I think it's the first verse that we read in our Scripture reading just now, here in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. So if we then speak to some particular non-Christian about a sin that they are committing, how do you think that non-Christian will respond? They will say to us, Dude, stop judging me. Even Jesus says we shouldn't judge. Get off my back. So if you said that Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1 is the most famous verse among non-Christians, you are the winner of our survey question today. Now, we will see in a moment that non-Christians who use this verse in this way have misunderstood Jesus' words about judging. Sadly, though, there are many Christians who do have a critical attitude toward others. There are many Christians who struggle with being judgmental today, just like there were many judgmental Pharisees in Jesus' day. And Jesus is clearly against a judgmental spirit. We see Jesus' opposition to judgmentalism in the question that he asked his hearers in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? That's a very good question, Jesus asks. And I'd like for us to try to answer that question today so that we can be free of the judgmentalism that Jesus is so against. Let's see some reasons from Matthew 7 today why we clearly can see specks, sins, and flaws in other people when we can't see anything in ourselves. First of all, we see specks in others because we like to play God. 
before we talk about how we play God, let's look at the, the meaning of the word judge in verse 1. The word judge has a very wide range of meanings. Sometimes we speak about judging in terms of evaluating or analyzing another person's behavior. And sometimes we speak about judging in terms of a, a judge condemning someone in a court of law and saying that they are guilty. So what is Jesus telling us not to do in verse 1? He is telling us, don't take on the role of a judge. He is telling us not to be judgmental and to condemn other people. After all, it wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to tell us not to evaluate another person's behavior. How many times a day does a parent have to evaluate their children's behavior, for example? If you see your child misbehaving and then you discipline your child, is Jesus going to tell you to stop judging your child? Children who are listening to me today, I hate to break it to you, that's not what Jesus will say to your parents. If your parents evaluate your behavior and they see something wrong in it, Jesus will instead praise them for doing their job. They are supposed to evaluate your behavior in order to help you to live an obedient life to God. So parents need to make a judgment about their children's behavior. They need to evaluate their children to make sure they are doing right. And the same thing is true with regard to supervisors on the job. Every supervisor that I know must give regular evaluations to the employees who work underneath them. Is it wrong for supervisors to judge their employees in that way? Some people might complain if they get an evaluation that they don't like. But there is nothing wrong in itself with an employee's job performance being judged. We need performance evaluations in order to properly reward those employees who are doing well and in order to help all employees to grow in their ability to do a good job. Some kinds of judging, then, are absolutely perfectly legitimate. We need to do that kind of judging. So what does Jesus mean, then, when he says in Matthew 7, 1, judge not? What's he talking about? He means don't be judgmental toward other people. Don't be constantly looking down your nose at other people and saying that these people are all bad having a critical spirit within you. Jesus says, don't be that kind of a judgmental person. Don't act like you and you alone are the righteous and good judge of all the earth. There is only one judge who is capable of judging the people around you. And who is that judge? God. I'd like for us to read out loud together as a church from Romans chapter 14 and verse 10. Let's read together. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Unfortunately, we human beings like to play God. We like to act like we are God. 
one of the ways that we put ourselves in the place of God is by judging and condemning other human beings. We tell other people all about their failures. We can clearly see the speck in their eyes. We see the evil that they have done. And then we encourage other people to look down on these bad people as well. Now, what is the consequence for you if you have a judgmental attitude toward other people? Jesus says in verse 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's kind of scary, isn't it? God is going to treat you in the same way that you treat other people. God will judge you in the same way that you judge other people. So don't try to play God. When you try to play God, you will be judged severely. You will be as severely judged as the judgments that you regularly make against other people. So then hear the warning of Jesus to you this morning. If you are blind to your own failings, but you claim to be able to see the failings of other people very clearly, you are living in a make-believe world. But you are going to see reality when God judges you. I am not what you would call a, a fire and brimstone type of preacher. Since my ancestors are all from Sweden, I am part of God's frozen chosen. So I'm very, very calm in the way I talk to people and in the way I live. I try to stay calm when I preach, although I am not wanting you to be so calm that you fall asleep. Okay? So that's not my goal in being calm. My goal is for you to be able to calmly assess what God says in the Word so that God can change you by His Holy Spirit not by me yelling at you. Me yelling at you is not going to change you. But the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Word, can change you. That's why I try to stay calm, and I hope that you are calm as you listen to God's Word. Now, even though I am not a fiery preacher, when a passage talks about a specific sin, I have to talk about it. That is my job. And sometimes when I talk about a specific sin during a sermon, I will hear an interesting comment from people after the sermon is finished. People will come up to me and say to me, you know, I really wish that so-and-so were here to hear that sermon today that you preached. They really need to hear that message about that sin. Have you ever thought that way after you heard a sermon? If you have thought that way, you something very clearly in as calm and as gentle a manner as possible. I think that Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 7 that it is you who has the greatest sin problem. By being judgmental toward another person who needed to hear that sermon about that sin, you have just revealed your own heart. You have tried to play God. And I've got news for you. There's only one God, and you're not Him. 
One reason that we can see specks and flaws clearly in other people is that we love to play God. But that is not who we are. We see specks in other people as well because we are often self-righteous. Let's look more closely at the context of Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 7. At the end of Matthew chapter 6, in verse 33, if you turn back just a few verses, there is another very famous verse. The verse says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, this verse is so famous that we used to sing it as a chorus many years ago, too many years ago, back when I was in college. Course went like this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Okay, so how many of you remember that chorus? Okay, you all are just as old as I am, so I wanted to let you know that, so sorry to point that out to you. But let's look at what this verse actually teaches us. Why is this verse so famous? What does it teach us? It teaches us that we are to seek and to hunger and to thirst for the righteousness of God. That's what we are to want as God's people. We are to love the righteousness of God. Because the righteousness of God is a beautiful thing. To be holy and God is holy that's what we want. And that's what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 6. But there can be a problem with desiring the good thing of righteousness. A desire for righteousness can breed within us self-righteousness. We can start to compare our righteousness to the righteousness of the people around us. And we can say to ourselves, you know, that person, they don't measure up. They're not as good as I am. I am the one who's really seeking after righteousness. They are clearly not. But when you become self-righteous in your own eyes, you become the central character in Jesus' funny story in Matthew 7 and verses 3 and 4. There Jesus asks, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Can you picture such a scene? You go to your eye doctor because you've got a little speck in there that's causing you some difficulty. And you say to the doctor, I need your help with getting this speck out of my eye. But when the doctor comes into the office, he's got this huge log coming out of his own eye. So what would you say to such a doctor? You'd say, um, you know, I, I think you should probably remove that log in your eye before you try and look at my eye. I don't think you're seeing too clearly right now. And I need a doctor who sees clearly. Self-righteous people have logs in their eyes. They cannot see their own sins and failures at all. But somehow, some way, they can clearly see the sins and failures 
of other people. A cashier at a grocery store once sent a letter to the advice columnist Ann Landers to complain that she had seen people at her grocery store buy birthday cakes and shrimp with their food stamps. And so this particular cashier said that people on welfare who treated themselves to such non-necessities were obviously lazy and wasteful people. I think that this cashier was surprised when the woman who bought the birthday cake responded after seeing Ann Lander's column. She wrote, I am the woman who bought the $17 birthday cake, and I paid for it with food stamps. I thought the checkout counter lady would burn a hole in me with her eyes when I bought that cake. What she didn't know is that that cake was for my little girl. This birthday will be her last. She has bone cancer, and she probably is not going to live longer than six to eight months. The cashier thought that she knew everything about the woman who bought the cake on food stamps. She thought that this woman was lazy to be on food stamps. She certainly didn't work as hard as the cashier did in the grocery store. And so she judged this mother who bought a birthday cake. She judged her in her own self-righteousness, even though she did not have all the facts. The only one with all the facts is God. He is the only one who can judge us perfectly. But when we judge other people, we are often just being self-righteous. So if the disease is having a judgmental and a self-righteous attitude toward others, what is the cure? Jesus shows us the cure in another story that he told in Luke chapter 18. If you brought your Bible here today, and I hope you did, turn with me over to Luke 18. And let's see this story that Jesus told to give us the cure for our own self-righteousness. Luke 18, I'll begin reading in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee in this particular story is the judgmental and the self-righteous one that Jesus talks about. Where, is the, where are the eyes of the Pharisee focused? First, first of all, the eyes of the Pharisee are focused on himself. In a 39-word prayer, the Pharisee must have set some kind of new world record for self-absorption. 
He used the word I in his prayer five times out of 39 words. This then is not so much a prayer to God as it is a hymn of praise for himself. God, would you look at me? Would you look at how great I am? Would you look at how righteous I am in comparison with the rest of this scum? God, you must be so pleased to have me as part of this particular thing. So his eyes are first on himself. But then he starts looking around, and he sees the Pharisees. And what does he say at that point? He says, wow. Would you look at this loser? I mean, God, you must be so glad that I'm here, at least. Not this guy. He's terrible. I'm so much better than he is. Notice, though, by contrast, where the eyes of the tax collector are. If you look at verse 13, where is his eyes? His eyes are on the ground. He wants to look at it. He wants to look at God. But he knows he can't look at the Holy God. He's a sinner who needs desperately God's mercy. And so he can't even look up. He looks down. The tax collector then looked in the mirror and he saw his need rather than looking at another person and going all judgmental in his heart. So what's the solution then for a self-righteous, judgmental attitude? The solution is found in this picture that I brought with me today. The solution for us who have a tendency toward judgmental attitudes and behavior is to always look in the mirror first. Take an honest look at yourself. See your need for mercy from God. Your need for mercy is just as great as anyone else's need. See that you have no righteousness of your own that you can brag about before God. See how you need the gift of Jesus' righteousness yourself, that he will freely give to you if you have faith that Christ died on the cross for your sins. Deal then with your own sin first. Get rid of the huge log that's in your own eye. And then you will be able to help someone else deal with the speck in their eye. Finally, we see the specks in other people's eyes because we are often hypocrites. How often we criticize others when we have far more serious shortcomings in our own lives than the other people do. Why do we do that? Honestly, it's because we can often be a hypocrite. Jesus used the word hypocrite to describe the people listening to him in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 5. That's the word Jesus used. You hypocrites. We like to act like we are so righteous, but we conveniently forget about our own major sins when we look at the small sins of others. Think, for example, about King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he went on to murder Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. When you break two of the Ten Commandments, you are not exactly rolling in righteousness at that moment. You are guilty of major sin. And so God sent to King David a prophet, the prophet Nathan. 
I mean, talk about a dangerous job. I cannot imagine a more dangerous job than being a prophet to a king within the nation of Israel. In America, the most dangerous job, statistically speaking today, is being a logger, cutting down trees. And we have all heard about loggers in Maine who have lost their lives simply doing their jobs. But in Israel, being a prophet was also a dangerous job. It often meant jail for prophets who would confront kings. stole the one lamb of the poor man, and he fed to his guests that one lamb of the poor man. Now, how did David respond to the story of Nathan? He went all judgmental on the rich man. David said to Nathan, the man who has done this deserves to die. That was his judgment. When Nathan pointed his own bony prophet's finger in David's face and said to David, You are the culprit. You hypocrite, David. Your sin is so great, and yet you can't even see it. You need to repent, turn away from this great sin that you have does David's story tell us about ourselves and our own hypocrisy? When we find ourselves getting all angry and judgmental at another person for their sin, slow down. Is it possible that I have committed a greater sin than this person who is standing before me? Is it possible that my anger at this person is really anger at myself for my own sin? Is it possible that I am being a hypocrite here? Yes, this person has done something wrong. Yes, this person needs to be confronted for their sin. But let me look in the mirror first. Let me receive the mercy that I need to receive from Jesus first. Then I can talk to this person about their sin and point them to the mercy and the righteousness that we all need in Christ. Jesus then closes this portion of the Sermon on the Mount with a reminder that there is evil in this world. He says in verse 6 of chapter 7, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The dogs that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 7 are not pets. He's not talking about Fido and Fifi. Jesus is talking about are, are rather wild, vicious dogs that will attack you with their teeth. And these pigs are not only unclean animals to Jews, 
They were vicious animals, capable of savage actions against human beings. So Jesus instead is summing up his teaching here by saying, in your desire for righteousness, don't be self-righteous. Don't be judgmental. But also, don't be naive. There is evil in the world, and you need to protect yourself from it. Make a proper judgment then about people. Don't be judgmental, but do be discerning and wise. So church, why is it that we have a tendency to be able to see the specks and flaws and sins in other people when we can't see anything bad in ourselves? Because we like to play God. We like to be the judge. And because we are often self-righteous, trusting in our own righteousness rather than in the righteousness of Christ that we need. And because, honestly, we can be such hypocrites. We like to criticize others when we have far more serious sins going on in our own lives. The good news of the gospel is that there is a solution for our self-righteousness and our judgmentalism. The solution starts for us by looking clearly into the Word of God, by seeing ourselves for who we truly are. We see in the Bible our own need for God's mercy. And once we see that need, we can cry out to God for the mercy that we need and for his righteousness that he freely gives to all who ask him for it. So don't look down on other people. Look up. Look up to Jesus and ask him for the gift of righteousness that you need. He loves to give this gift to all who ask him for it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know that we love to see the flaws and the sins and the specks in other people. You know that we are such self-righteous people. But you also are a merciful God. You know how much we need your mercy and your righteousness. So I ask, God, that you would deliver us from our pride. I ask that you would deliver us from our self-righteousness. I pray that you would humble us. I pray that we would seek your mercy and seek your face. And I pray that we would extend your mercy to those around us in need. In your great name we pray. Amen.